Sorry. Uh, just to bring you back to where we were. By the way, I'd like to welcome Gustavo Ortega. Long time. Uh, one of the first students who ever studied here. Uh, to bring you back to where we were, uh, we were halfway through the very first class we ever had. Uh, we were talking about the three principal paths. Uh, first one being when uh, someone close to you dies and you finally decide that maybe you should check something out. Okay? Renunciation. Um, and the, again, the best Buddhists I know are people who had some personal disaster and then they went looking for something. Okay? So I had this lady come up to me the other night and say, I've been praying that I could have this personal disaster and uh, I'm happy, happy to report my an- prayers were answered. You know, <laughs> Some terrible thing happened to her. Anyway, uh, hopefully you can do it intellectually. Secondly is uh, bodhicitta, okay? Uh, really having ultimate compassion, and we'll talk about that tonight. And then finally, uh, correct view, uh, the view of emptiness, to understand emptiness and karma, okay? We've covered already renunciation, and now we're going to go on to uh, bodhicitta, or ultimate compassion. And then finally we'll go on to uh, correct view, all tonight, okay? Because next class you start the second course uh, we had, which is refuge, okay? Perfection of wisdom, okay? Uh, so we're going to cover uh, a month and a half of stuff tonight, all right? Uh, Bodhicitta is a very famous word. People sometimes spell it without the H because when you transcribe Sanskrit, you don't use an H and then the people go around saying Bodhicitta. Okay, that's a mistake, all right? Uh, so Bodhicitta is the Sanskrit word. I'll give you the Tibetan word. Say Chang, Chu, Ki, Sam. Chang, Chu, Ki. Sem. Uh, by the way, there's also another word for bodhicitta called semke, and I'm not going to write that here, but just you might see that sometimes, semke, okay? Uh, the Jiangchu part means bodhi, and the sem part means chitta. Some, bodhi means uh, Buddha, and uh, chitta means mind. So in the early days, people were translating as Bodhi mind or Buddha mind, and then people thought that that meant the mind of a Buddha, like an enlightened being's mind, and that's wrong. Okay, that's not what Bodhicitta means. Uh, You can get Bodhicitta uh, thousands of years before you get enlightened, okay? So it doesn't mean the mind of a Buddha. It means the wish to become a Buddha, okay? Wish to become a Buddha. So, you can really help others. So then you see, this is a very important point. Uh, this is how bodhicitta is defined, okay? Uh, very famous. Maitreya defined it that way, okay? Semkepani means bodhicitta is, shendunchir means for the sake of others, means to want to get to be a complete Buddha. So, the definition of bodhicitta is 
the desire to become a, or the wish to become a fully enlightened Buddha so you can really help other people. Okay? And, and you hear people say, oh, the, oh, by the way, once you get bodhicitta, you're automatically a bodhisattva. Okay? That's the difference between a person who's not a bodhisattva and is a bodhisattva. As soon as you have real bodhicitta, you are a bodhisattva. On the first instant that you have real bodhicitta, you become a bodhisattva. Okay? Um, and then you hear people saying, uh, he's a really nice guy, so I think he's a bodhisattva. Or, I heard this Lama say that this guy must be a bodhisattva. You know, and you say, why? And you say, well, he's just so nice, you know. He's nice to everybody. Uh, and he's always giving money away to poor people and stuff like that. Uh, those are good things and that's a, those are good indicators that the person is a good person or a holy person. But it's not what bodhicitta is about at all, okay? Bodhicitta is a much different thing. Uh, a person with bodhicitta, by the way, to experience bodhicitta really, Okay, to have the real uh, experience of total compassion for all living beings is extremely rare. Okay, like in a room of typical people, you might find one or, or less. To, to really get pure bodhicitta in your mind is a spiritual breakthrough that very few people reach. Okay, extremely difficult to get true bodhicitta. And, and it's not the, like some vague desire to get enlightened, okay? And it's not some idea that I would like to get enlightened someday. It's a mystical experience that occurs to you. It's a specific uh, visions are connected with it. And, and then you truly see yourself for the rest of your lives uh, doing every single activity of the day and night to aid other beings by, by becoming a Buddha yourself, okay? And that's a big difference, okay? Uh, a typical Bodhisattva might be, rather than being sweet and nice to everybody and going out and helping everybody all the time, they might be uh, doing intense meditation or they might be trying to see emptiness directly because they realize that this is the way they can really help other people. And that's a little bit difficult for American people, you know? Uh, I had a big debate with somebody the other day, you know, they said, oh, bodhisattvas should go out and feed poor people and stuff like that. Um, that's a very important activity, and if you're a bodhisattva, you probably will be doing that activity. But the real state of mind of a bodhisattva, the bodhisattva state of mind is very specific, and there's no doubt about it. They have one thing in mind. They can see what it's like to be totally enlightened, and they're spending all their energy to get there. Uh, with, the, with other people in mind. And they have, you know, there's a big debate in the scripture, can they see every single being? Uh, and you say, no, they can't. But when you get bodhicitta directly, when you have the direct first experience of bodhicitta, you have a, what we call nelzerngunsum, you have a, a yogic or a mystical experience of actually being able to serve every living being. You don't see every living being, but you have this uh, experience of covering every other living being and being able to treat them well, okay? I'll give you an example, okay? Some people talk about bodhisattvas being willing to uh, hold off from their enlightenment. You know, they're like so compassionate that just before they get enlightened, they say, no, you know what? I'll wait a few years and I'll hang out in this suffering world with other people just to be with them and to guide them. I will even delay my own enlightenment for others, okay? This is like a typical Dharma rumor, okay? Remember what happens the minute you get enlightened. The minute you get enlightened, you pick up an extra trillion bodies or so, okay? I mean, you can help, you can emanate trillions of bodies on 
on trillions of planets. You can read the minds of every person on this planet. You can see their future for millions of years, every detail of it. I mean, you're, would you rather be a person like that or one single guy walking around planet Earth trying to help a few people? You see what I mean? The point is, get to enlightenment as fast as you can yourself. And then, and then learn how to bring other people there well. Because you can read a million people's minds. You can tell them, you can tell what's going to happen to them in the next thousand years or so every day. Uh, in one moment. You, you want to pick up this capacity. You want to reach this capacity. And you can. Every normal American person sitting here has the capacity mentally to reach this before you die. And, and you've got to put your mind on that. And that's, that's real bodhicitta. A bodhisattva might not look like a bodhisattva. A bodhisattva might not be a nice guy or a smiley guy or something like that. They are intent on one goal. And, and that's to become enlightened so they can really help other people. And they're, the, everything they do, from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep, every action they undertake is aimed at becoming an, uh, an enlightened being. And they, they're, in, they're fanatical about it. They know what they have to do and they're... They're concentrating on only that. And that's, that's bodhisattva. Okay, that's bodhicitta. Okay. Does it mean that uh, we can just sit around all day and study books and uh, ignore the suffering people around us? Uh, that, that's an indication that the person didn't get it. You see what I mean? Uh, it's, it's unlikely that a person would be wanting to save all living beings and not be willing to help a homeless person. Okay? That, they don't quite jive. Okay, yeah, you'd have to be someone who's A, studying scripture intensely, B, meditating for long periods of time, C, going on retreats a lot, and D, organizing some kind of projects to help poor people or people who are needy or stuff like that. You see what I mean? It's not like when you become a bodhisattva, you don't do those normal good things, but you're concentrating very heavily on meditation and study that you need to do, and then uncontrollably you're spending time helping other people in a physical way. Uh, and, and, and I doubted that you could find a bodhisattva that wasn't doing both. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. All right? So that's Chanchukki uh, Sem. That's bodhicitta. All right? And you have to... That's the second of the three principal paths. And you must try to reach that. Okay? You must try to reach that experience. Very, very difficult. If you had it happen to you once in this lifetime, you'd be very fortunate. Okay? It should last about two minutes. And to really have it happen to you would be worth a lifetime of study and, and effort. Uh, it's very rare uh, to reach that. Okay? How do you reach it? There are several uh, famous instructions, and I'm going to give you one of them. Okay? Uh, this is called the seven-step instruction for, for developing bodhicitta. Uh, you can ignore it. Well, you can read this. This one over here, by the way, is the other spelling of bodhicitta. Okay, this is the other Tibetan word for bodhicitta. You can use either one on your homework. Okay. Say, Marche. Marche. Uh, this is the first of the seven steps for developing bodhicitta. Marche means recognize that all other beings have been your mother. Okay. Recognize that all other beings have been your mother. Now, I get a lot of people telling me, uh, Americans especially, my mother was not very nice. And uh, it's no big deal for me to recognize other people as my mother, okay? I'd rather not. You know what I mean? 
Uh, scripture says, um, no matter what you think of your current mother, uh, if you had to do what she did for you just by having you, you'd probably change your mind. You see what I mean? Like, just to carry somebody around for nine months, uh, to go through some kind of uh, body-splitting torture. Uh, I remember Bill Cosby saying it was something like wrapping your upper lip over your head. <laughs> something like that. Uh, that even just that. And, and you don't know anything or you can't learn anything without your mother. Like, you assume that all people talk. And you assume that all people walk. And you assume that people know how to do basic things. Basic ways of behaving in society. Your mother has equipped you with these things from the beginning. And you don't even remember it. And you take it for granted. But actually, the first, what, five, ten years, it's constant trouble for them. Every single minute of the day, they either have to be taking care of you or worrying about taking care of you, responsible for taking care of you. And not to somehow think that they did a... And to worry about the fights you had with your mother when you got to 20 or something uh, is to ignore the fact that they didn't invest one hour in you or two hours in you. They invested, they invested their entire mind's energy for five to ten years, fifteen years, some people fifty years. They, they, they couldn't stop thinking about taking care of you. Whether it was them or some kind of babysitter or something, they had to arrange it. Every hour of the day, they had to be wondering where you were, if you were all right, how to take care of you, how to feed you. And to ignore it is, is crazy. So we're talking about the ideal mother, okay? We're not talking, if your mother was a bad person and she left you or something like that, don't think of that. Think of an ideal mother, okay? That's what we're talking about here. Every other being in the world has been your ideal mother countless times, okay? Countless times. Your mind has no beginning. You have had every relationship with every other person countless times. You've been Miss America countless times. Okay? I'm not kidding. Okay? You've been President of the United States countless times. Right? Uh, you've been everything countless times. Because the odds are infinite. And you've been through it countless times. Uh, this involves proving that your mind didn't have a beginning. And you have to work on that. You have to study it. You have a prejudice that comes from a Western background that says that your mind started when your brain started. And that's not correct. That's not true. Okay? But it takes time to prove it to somebody otherwise. You have to work on it. But there hasn't been a time in history when your mind wasn't somewhere in this universe. Your mind has been here forever. Uh, there's no beginning to your mind. And there will be no end to your mind. Okay? Meaning you've been everything to everybody else, you know. Logically, how do you prove it? I think for an American, you can just say, say statistics, you know. If time is infinite, I mean, I'll, I'll give you just a high school, that's all the statistics I ever did. Uh, I'll give you high school statistics. If time is infinite, if the time before this is infinitely long, and, and if you could happen once, which you did because you're sitting here, is it isn't it likely that you happened before? I mean, that's, to me, that's all the statistics you need. Okay? If time is infinite, and if you were born once, then can't the same thing happen again? Maybe you can say it's just a bunch of accidental chemicals coming together on the shore of the Pleistocene Ocean or something, but can't that happen countless times if time is infinite? You see what I mean? Uh, if you can be here once, why can't you be here again? You see, if the odds are one in a zillion that you can happen, then you'll happen countless times because the odds are infinite. You know, zillions, the zillions have no end. 
you will come again. And you were here before. And everybody around you has been everything to you. So then some Americans come up to me and say, well, then uh, I should hate everyone because everyone's murdered me countless times. You know, you know, Anne Lindsay has eaten me countless times. You know, and they say, come on, this is not a positive attitude. <laughs> okay, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But we choose to focus on the fact that uh, she has served me countless lifetimes. She has cared for me in thousands and thousands and thousands of lifetimes. I remember this is one of the first teachings I ever got. I was in Dharamsala, India, up on the mountain in Gangcheng, Kishong, and I got out of class and I determined that the first person I met, I was going to meditate on them as my mother. And I met this grubby Indian Japati seller, you know, on the side of the road. And I'm like, this is my mother. You know, and, uh, and so I'm like trying to concentrate on this guy as my mother. And then I'm, I'm like, and, and if you try it, it's a very good exercise. You know, we can talk about it. We can talk about it theoretically. But tonight when you go home, you know, not, don't count people in this class, but when you go home, you go out, first person you meet, you know, the first person you have a few minutes to, to be around them, wonder about the possibility that they were your mother and that they took care of you like that. Uh, okay, that's the very first step in developing bodhicitta. It's a very, very beautiful exercise. It's, it's a good way when you're walking around the streets in New York and you don't want to waste your time. Uh, think about it. When your eyes catch on somebody, think, this, this could have been my mother. Okay? I say statistically, they have been. Okay? Say, tin din? Tin din? Tin means uh, kindness. Ten means, think about it. Recall. Recall their kindness. Okay, think about their kindness. And again, you know, in this life, I haven't been a mother, okay? I can remember one time I made a deal with some friends in Arizona. I said, if you cook for me during retreat, I'll babysit your kids for two days afterwards, you know? And uh, this is fair, right? 30 days of cooking for two days of babysitting. And, uh, and I was like 30-something years old and... Uh, I thought this is going to be a cinch, you know. And uh, this is like all day and all night. And there's two kids, I don't know, they must have been about, oh, four and six or something like Two boys, all right. And uh, so I came out of this blissful retreat, silent, uh, for 40 days. And then I said, you guys go on your second honeymoon and give me the kids. And they left the kids at my house. And I've never gone through such torture, you know. And uh, the worst thing, I mean, the worst thing was that that I couldn't get to sleep at night because I had to think about them. You know, I mean, I had to worry that one of them might get up or wander out of the house. Or, and it was like completely... I mean, the fact that every single minute of the day I had to be engaged with them was, was unbearable to me, you know. I mean, I like to play with people's children and then I like to send them home, you know. And, uh, but to be there every single moment of the whole day and I remember going into the bathroom because I had to poop, you know, and they wouldn't let me. They were banging on the door, you know, and I was thinking, how do people do this, you know? And, uh, and it, that's the way it is. I mean, you, you can think of your mother as a good person or a bad person. It doesn't matter. They did that for you, okay? For years, you know, they gave up everything to, whether they were immediately taking care of you or somebody else was, it was their responsibility and every moment of the day they were thinking about it, okay? And, and Tinden means think about that. You know, think about that. The ultimate kindness, by the way, that your mother has given you, according to Buddhism, 
is that they gave you a body, okay? Good, bad, or indifferent, your mother provided the physical material to produce you. Okay? I mean, according to Buddhism, once conception has occurred, their greatest kindness has already been delivered. You know, which is just to give you a human body. Because once you have a human body, if you study properly, practice properly, meditate properly, and then study Tantra properly, you can get enlightened with this body. You can become a, an enlightened being with the material that, with the raw material that they provided you. No one has ever paid anyone a greater kindness than that. You see? And, and that's the big deal. They talk about the five greatest sins of Buddhism. One is to kill your mother. And the reason is only that they have provided you with the greatest gift that a person can give another one, which is the, the opportunity or the chance to, become an enlight- to get out of suffering, to become an enlightened being in one lifetime. So just based on that, you owe them a lot. And, and as you walk around and the first person you see out on the street tonight, I think Subway is really good if you sit across from somebody, then look at them and think, you know, maybe this person did that for me. And that was really nice. I remember that. I thank them for that. Okay? By the way, each step is built on the one before. And your homework asks you about it. Okay? Meaning, you can't appreciate their kindness if you don't believe they could have been your mother. Okay? So you've got to have the first one first. And then you have the second one. And the, and the Lamrim and the other books say, meditate on each one in order. Okay? Think about the first one a lot. And then think about the second one. Okay? Based on the first one. If you jump ahead to the second one without going to the first one, you won't... It won't work so well, okay? Say tinsel. Tinsel. Tinso means the next step is to think about paying back their kindness. So means to pay back. Tin means kindness. Okay? Tinso means pay them back. And in Buddhism, gratitude is like a high spiritual level. Okay? Gratitude is a... I think in our society, it's a very weak point. I think in our society, uh, we are almost uh, handicapped or retarded about the concept of gratitude but uh, it's a very fulfilling concept it's a very wonderful emotion to have is to think of what someone else has done for you and then do something to help them in return you know do something to pay them back those of you who have taken bodhisattva vows this is, this is one of your vows okay uh, if someone has paid you some kind of kindness you must repay them you must go out of your way to help them back okay and, and all throughout Buddhist scripture it says you are some kind of Monster, if you don't think this way. You see what I mean? You have a mental illness. You have a defect in your head. If, you don't, if it doesn't occur to you that you should help that person back who's, who's been giving you something, who's been serving you, helping you, giving you something, that, that it, it's one of the greatest human emotions, spiritually, to think, oh, this person spent a lot of time trying to help me. Maybe I should do something back to help them. Okay? That's called tinsel. Okay? So as, by the way, that can't happen unless what? Yeah, unless you think about what they did for you. I mean, Americans, I am very good at ignoring both, you know? Like, I don't think about how much time someone spent to train me, for example, 
And then it never occurs to me to give anything back to them. Okay, so that's, that's a real typical cycle. All right. Say you won't, you won't. Champa. champa. You won't, won't. champa. Okay. Uh, champa is the Tibetan word for Maitri in Sanskrit meaning love. Okay? Love. Uh, you won't means pretty. Okay? Pretty love. And this is a special kind of love. In in Tibetan philosophy, when you're studying Bodhicitta, this is a special kind of love. The pretty part means uh, if a mother had only one child and they weren't able to have any other children and they spent all their energy on this one child, how does that child look to them? You won't. You see, you won't means pretty or beautiful. You know, it's, a, it's not a joke, okay? I have a certain number of students with children. Each one of them invariably comes to me and confides in me that they have the most intelligent child they've ever seen. You know, like, even the modest ones, you know, uh, they come up and say, well, I'm not bragging or anything, but, you know, today he, like, waved his arm, you know, and, and you, know, <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and uh, you know, and that's Yuong. Yuong means you look at this kid and you just can't, they just look like the most beautiful thing you ever saw. You know, that's called Yuong. So, Yon Jamba is a state of love where, where when you look at other people, no matter how ugly their mug is, you, you still are struck with this l- impression that they're the most beautiful, precious little thing you've ever seen. And you think that about everybody, okay? That's like very hard, okay? And that's a high spiritual achievement. And that's, that's the next step in developing bodhicitta, okay? The wish for enlightenment is to get to where you could reach that stage where every time you saw somebody, no matter how good they were or bad to you, you would think, oh, this is the most lovely little thing I ever saw. Now, how can I help this thing, you know? Uh, Sutra makes these sounds when he sees a cute dog, you know, weak, 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 you know, and suppose you made this every time you saw somebody, you know? doesn't matter if they're tall or fat or short, or, you just see them and you're like, oh, weak, 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 you know? You're, you're the most beautiful little thing I ever saw. And then you want to help them. You want to do something for them. Jampa, by the way, there's two versions of love in, in Buddhism. Jampa means you want to give them something. So, I mean, you want to provide them with something. Okay? With every kind of happiness you can. All right? You can see how it comes out of wanting to pay them back. Okay? Natural progression from wanting to pay them back, which was the step before. Here's number five. Say Ninje Chembo. Ninje Chembo. Ninje means compassion. Chembo means big. Okay? In Sanskrit, Mahakaruna. By the way, Ning means heart and J means king. 
king of heart, okay, compassion. And this is how it's different from love. You see, love wants to give people things. Love wants to supply everybody with everything they ever hoped for. Real Bodhicitta says, I want everyone around me to get enlightened during my lifetime. I want to watch it happen. And by the way, I also want to feed them a nice Indian dinner. You know what I mean? Like it's what we call common attainments and ultimate attainments. But, but Jamba, love, wants to do both. Okay? Uh, Ningje is different. Ningje looks at people and says, I want to remove from them all the problems they have. Okay? So I, I want to identify everything about the lives of the people around me that is bad, and I want to help them get rid of that thing. Okay? I want to help each person get rid of everything bad about their life. Okay? So in the short term, it would be teach them how to make a living. You see what I mean? Uh, teach them how to cook something like that. In the ultimate, it would be teach this person how not to have a mental affliction. You know, teach this person how to get away from the tyranny of their own bad thoughts. You see what I mean? That's the, like a real gift that you could give somebody. Your bad thoughts push you around all day. You make yourself miserable all day. If, if someone could come and teach you how to stop doing that, that would be Ningje. You see what I mean? Ningje is like teach somebody how to stop shooting themselves in the foot. Okay? And that's the ultimate Ningje. Okay? Teach them how to stop the, the impure part of their own mind. It's the ultimate kind of compassion. Okay? I want to point out something about these two. The first one was love. The second one was compassion. And there's a debate in the text, you know. Maybe we should have put compassion before love. Maybe the, it would be more logical to put the compassion before love. Why? Suppose you have a child who's very sick, who has a very high fever. Um, and you had a choice between giving them an ice pack on their head. My mom used to do that, okay? Or giving them a nice new bicycle. You see what I mean? I mean, first you have to deal with people's pain. First you have to remove their pain. And then you give them the nice stuff that they want. Okay? So, theoretically, say people, compassion should come before love. You know, first you have to remove all the people's problems. And then you can give them all the nice stuff. Okay? So, why is it this order? Um, the yiwong part is very important here. Yiwong means you have to learn to look at them as being, quick, 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 you know, the most beautiful thing you ever saw. And then you'll want to take their pain away. You see what I mean? So that's the reason for the order this way. Sometimes they do it this way. Okay? Now we're on to number six. Say, Paksam. Namdat. Paksam. Namdat. Paksam Namdat, I really like it. Uh, means ultimate personal responsibility. Okay? Paksam Namdat means ultimate personal responsibility. Plaksam means like a super personal willingness to take responsibility. Namdak means pure. But the whole thing together means something like ultimate personal responsibility. Meaning this. Uh, I will take it upon myself to do the best I can to 
remove other people's suffering and to give them all the things that they need and I don't care if anyone else helps me or not. Okay? I don't care if anyone else helps me or not. I don't care if they think I'm crazy. I don't care if they attack me. I don't care if they don't help me. I don't care if I spend all my own money on it. I'm going to do it. Okay? It's just that personal decision that I'm not waiting for other people to show up and pitch in. Because guess what? They won't. Okay? <laughs> you know, this is like you just decide, you know, no matter what people say about me, no matter what I have to do, no matter how much of my personal resources I have to spend, no matter how much of my time I have to spend, I will take care of as many people as I can. Period. You know, and I won't wait for other people to help me. Okay? That's just a decision in your a resolution in your mind. And and that's very close to bodhicitta. Okay? You like you're flirting with bodhicitta now. Okay? When you get to that stage you're very close to bodhicitta. Okay? Then you flop over into bodhicitta. And that's that was up here, that was number seven. Sam, this is the other word for bodhicitta. Sam means mind or chitta, meaning the wish to get enlightened. And ke means you get it. You achieve it. Rinpoche's new book, Achieving Bodhicitta, Sam ke, okay? Uh, that's the meaning of it. And that's the result of the other six steps. This is like this final decision. I want... By the way, it comes naturally out of number six. How? In number six you decided... If no one else in the world helps me, and in fact, if every single person I know attacks me, I don't care. I'm still going to do it. I'm going to do the fastest way I know how to get myself enlightened to take care of other people. Okay? And then, number seven is, okay, what's the fastest way for me to do it? What's the best way for me to help other people? i got to get enlightened. i got to get those other trillion bodies going. Okay? I have to get the ability to see other people's minds. But what's the most important thing? You know, you should be thinking. If you have ultimate compassion, it's a very simple thought. I want to reach paradise. I want to reach total ecstasy as fast as I can. And then I can show other people how to do it. You see what I mean? The rest is all BS, okay? I mean, to stand up there and say, uh, everyone should get enlightened and uh, here's how to do it and you guys try, okay? And... Uh, I, you know, that's not the way it works. If you were really compassionate, if you really cared about other people, and if you understood a little bit about Buddhism, you would see that it's possible to become an enlightened being, especially if you practice Tantra in this lifetime. You, you would see that this is a real possibility. And so the most compassionate thing you can do for other people is to get enlightened yourself first. Okay, in the Lam Rim it's called eating the meat first. Uh, there's a story in the Lam Rim. Uh, this family is in a famine and there's three kids and a wife and a husband and there's no food and they're down to it's called the it's called the popcorn kernel famine and they're going through the cupboards and trying to find old popcorn kernels that fell out of the box because that's all there is to eat in the house and there's nothing in the whole country uh, these are at the end of the third chapter of the Kosha, okay and it's called Muge uh, the famine years you know and and then suddenly by good luck, they come across a hamburger. Okay? Like, a big hunk of meat. I mean, in the scriptures, it's a hunk of dried meat or something like that. Okay? But suddenly, they come across this freeze-dried hamburger or something. 
So they're making a decision, you know, should we cut it into five parts? Or what should we do? What's, what's the best thing to do? And the father, out of compassion, eats the whole thing himself. So that he can be strong enough to go out and look for food for the family. See what I mean? And then he'll be strong enough to bring back more food. And that's the most compassionate thing you can do. It's a very interesting concept. It means sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do is to get enlightened uh, so that you can help other people. So it becomes a very interesting uh, commandment of Buddhist practice. You are required by all all of Buddhism, all Buddhist scripture, all Buddhist knowledge, all Buddhist masters who have ever lived, require of you personally that you reach total ecstasy as quickly as possible so that you can help other people. Okay? And you have to think of that. And I have a lot of students, Americans, who say they don't feel comfortable with that. You know, it seems selfish, you know. I get total ecstasy and that's the best thing I can do for other people? Get it. Right. Okay? That's right. And, and don't feel uncomfortable with it, okay? It's not uh, selfish, and it's not unspiritual. Uh, it's your duty, okay? Uh, you can sit there and explain emptiness, for example, all night because you read about it in some book. But if you've seen it directly, and you're explaining it to other people, they can smell it, okay? You don't have to say, I saw emptiness directly. You can just say, hey, here's what it's like. Here's what happens to you, you know? Here's exactly what happens to you. And they smell it, you know. They, you don't have to get up and make wild claims or, or say one thing or another. They smell that you've seen it. They know that you've seen it. And it, that's the same difference. If you're going to really help other people, then you've got to get enlightened yourself first. It's the only way, it's the only position from which you can honestly describe to other people how to do it, is if you do it yourself, okay? And, that, and that's the best thing you can do for other people, okay? You've got to get used to that. Then I, I, was, I was saying these words uh, a couple days ago to this guy and he started shaking and he got angry and he said, so that means you shouldn't help starving people? That means you shouldn't help homeless, hopeless people? Homeless people? You shouldn't do all these things? I said, no, it means you should because that's how you get enlightened. And he says, that's even worse, you know? So you're telling me you're only going to do these things for other people because it'll get you enlightened? I said, right. Okay. Because that's the only way you can help them. Okay, that's the only real way you can help them. Okay? You become a Dalai Lama, you can help tens, hundreds of thousands of people. Okay? You've got to think like that. Right? Does it mean you shouldn't help other people? No, you should. I don't know a single Bodhisattva who doesn't help other people, homeless, hungry people, all kinds of people. Okay? They, you will. You don't have to worry about it. That's a byproduct. Okay? But the mind has to be the, the definition. It's focused on all other people and wants to get enlightened. You see what I mean? So you've got to be in that mood. Okay? That's ultimate compassion. It, it's not just being friendly to other people. Okay? That's not going to save them. You can feed other people. You can clothe them. Uh, you can comfort them. And while you're doing it, they're getting older and dying. Okay? Uh, you get into enlightenment, you can teach them how not to die. You can teach them how not to get old. You can teach them how not to need food or beds or houses. Okay? And, and that's the point. It's very difficult in our realm, you know, our neighborhood here, our, our hood, you know, the, the hood that you're in called the desire realm. This kind of talk sounds crazy. I had a woman the other day, it's a big uh, 
a famous writer who's doing an interview with me, you know, and she says, uh, you're talking like Walt Disney on acid, you know. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. And, and I, I say, you're in the desire realm. You haven't seen enlightened realms. You haven't seen the other hoods that are around. You see what I mean? Uh, and you assume that this is the only realm there is. Uh, it's not like that. There are other realms. There's a form realm. There's a formless realm. They exist. They're not just some Buddhist fantasy. And enlightened realms exist. And if you saw one for five minutes, you'd stop all this other stuff and try to get there and try to get other people there. You see what I mean? It's, there are, don't think that this is the only place there is. It's not. And, and you can see those other realms and you can get there and then you can teach other people to get there. This realm is an accident. You know, you don't get into this realm unless you have some karmic accident. Uh, unless you have ignorance, uh, you can't get into this realm. This realm is full of misfits. If you're in the desire realm, that's proof that you're a misfit. Okay? It's proof that you didn't do things right. That you actually screwed up big time. And you're in this realm that doesn't work. Okay? It's a dysfunctional realm. Seriously. Okay? The world as you know it is dysfunctional. The only thing you can get here is dead. Okay, uh, you can work your—I mean, you can work your whole life, collect money, try to go to the gym, use all the makeup you want, buy the best high heel shoes you can locate. Doesn't matter. It's all doomed. It's a crazy man's activity to live in this world, and and this is just one of many many realms. And and you don't have to live here, and you don't have to be here, and you can teach other people to get out. And that would be the kindest thing to do. You have to think that's true. It's really true. Okay. All right. That's uh, bodhicitta. What time you got? Okay. We're gonna go like another ten minutes. You're gonna learn all about emptiness in ten minutes. Okay. <laughs> Say Tendale. Tendale. Tendale has been translated clumsily as dependent origination. Dependent origination. Eight syllables. Okay. I think you can't be an, an American Buddhist unless you can say dependent origination quickly, like five times in a row. Okay. <laughs> I like to call it dependence or interdependence. I don't know. I think dependence is probably easier. It does mean dependent origination. Tenjing Dao means things happen because of dependence. Okay? Things happen because of dependence. Everything around you and you has occurred through some kind of dependence on other things. Okay? That's all. If you want to understand emptiness, you've got to understand dependent origination first. Okay? It's the flip side of emptiness, okay? Dependent origination is a positive fact. It's why things happen. Emptiness is a negative fact. Why things don't happen, okay? And we'll get to it, okay? But, but without understanding dependent origination or why things happen, how things happen around you, you can never get to emptiness. So we're going to go to dependent origination first, all right? The book that you're studying, uh, which you'll finally get tonight in your notebook, okay? is uh, The Three Principal Paths and the commentary by the Holy Glorious Pabonka Rinpoche, uh, translated by the Holy Glorious Ken Rinpoche. Okay? And, 
And in there is the most beautiful explanation of dependent origination I've ever seen. Okay, so you've got to know it and you're going to have it on your homework. Okay? He goes through explaining three different versions of dependent origination. Okay, there are three different explanations of what it means to be dependent. Okay, and we're going to go through all three. Because you can't understand emptiness unless you understand those three. Okay, here's number one. Uh, the first version of dependent origination is the one that's accepted by these three schools. Remember, there are four great schools of ancient India. We're not talking about the four Tibetan schools. Okay, we're talking about the four great schools of ancient India: the Vibhajika, which is Abhidharma; the Sautrantika, which is Sutrists, those who put a lot of faith in Sutra, and they teach a lot of logic. And then, thirdly, the mind-only school, Chittamatra or Samsampa. Okay, and these are the the three, the three lower schools of ancient India. And they all made a consortium and said, we're going to sell dependent origination this way. Okay, one. Very simple. Things depend on their causes and conditions to occur. Okay, that's what dependent origination means. Things occur in dependence on their causes and conditions. Okay. Causes in the case of a fruit tree being, being like an apple seed. Conditions being the water, the soil, the sunlight, the fertilizer. Okay? But dependent on those, all things occur. Now I'm going to teach you something about emptiness. Okay? Supposedly, the only way to be happy, according to Buddhism, the only way to remove your bad thoughts forever is to see emptiness directly. There is no other method to be happy. Okay, get it? If you don't see emptiness directly in this lifetime, it's physically impossible for you to be happy. It will never occur. You cannot remove anger, jealousy, hatred, desire. Impossible to remove them unless you see emptiness directly. Okay? So something about this explanation has to be able to overcome your anger, your desire, your jealousy. Okay, let's investigate. Is this a good explanation of dependent origination or not? Okay, and I saw this in... Uh, I don't know where it was. Anyway, so suppose I get mad at my boss or something. Okay? Suppose I'm mad at my boss when they come into the office because they're criticizing me for something. Okay? And then I'm looking at them. Does it help to say, you know what? This guy came from his mother. If his father hadn't been there as a condition, he wouldn't be here either. You know? Now my anger has gone away. <laughs> you know? Okay? Okay, anyone who goes and tries to sell the meaning of dependent origination, the ultimate meaning of dependent origination, as being, oh, those things which depend on their causes and conditions. I mean, maybe it helps a little bit, okay? To know, okay, he may be yelling at me because he had a backache in the morning and had a fight with his wife and he's, he ate at an Indian restaurant on 6th Street last night and got sick. Okay, but uh, so I understand where he's coming from. Does that remove your mental afflictions forever? It, no, it helps you appreciate his problems, you know, it makes you a little more compassionate towards him, but it doesn't remove your mental afflictions. This is not the ultimate explanation of dependent origination. Okay, it's not. And, and you know, unfortunately, I think many uh, presentations of Buddhism never go beyond this. You see, they say, look, don't worry, realize that everything comes from its causes and conditions. See you later. You know, and you're like, that's it? You know, that's not it, okay? There's two more versions which are even more helpful, okay? 
Is this one dumb or retarded or something you should forget? No, it's very helpful. That's why Lord Buddha taught it. Uh, but it's not the ultimate, okay? Here's number two. Okay, the next best explanation is by the independent. Independent is a translation of the word Svatantrika. The Tantrika here has nothing to do with Tantra, okay? It's a wholly different meaning of the word. Here it means uh, a kind of logic, okay? They accept that there's a kind of logic which works to explain emptiness and that that logic itself is self-existent in a way. So you don't have to worry about why they're called independents, okay? Enough to know that they are the lower half of the highest of the four schools. What's the highest of the four schools? Middle way, or Madhyamika, okay? The highest of the four ancient schools of India was called Madhyamika. This is the lower half of that school. And they have their own idea about dependent origination, okay? They say the following. Something is dependently originating when it depends on its parts. Something is dependent origination if it depends on its parts. Instead of saying what the lower group said, what did the lower group say? It has to depend on causes and conditions. That's what makes it dependent origination. This school says, no, no, no. You have to say something is dependent when it depends on its parts. Okay? And our explanation is better than those functionalists. Because, as everybody knows, there's stuff in the world which has causes and there's stuff in the world that doesn't have any causes. Okay? And their explanation only covers half. Okay? Our explanation covers everything. Okay? By the way, uncaused things are not too numerous. There's only a few. Emptiness is one. It doesn't have a cause. Okay? It exists, but it doesn't have a cause. Another one is empty space. Okay? Things can come and go, planets can come and go, Milky Ways can melt or not melt, empty space remains. After all is said and done, empty space is there, never had a beginning, never had a cause, okay? It's there. Its parts are direction, okay? The parts of empty space are direction. The parts of emptiness, you can say the emptiness of four o'clock, the emptiness of five o'clock, stuff like that, okay? Really, uh, the emptiness of the object as the object changes, okay? The, the emptinesses refer to different bases as the object changes, and those are different, those are parts, okay? So like that. Uh, they like this explanation, they say it's better. Now remember the test that I, you know, I went through years of trying to find this explanation. And, and I went through years, I remember being in Dhamsala, I'm 21 or 22 years old, I'm starting to study Buddhism, this Harvard postgraduate has a, his, his, what do you call it, thesis, you know, that he's been doing there with some lama for the last four years, you know, and he says, here, read this, it'll, it'll give you everything you need to know, you know, so I open it up, I start reading, and then he's got this part, it says, those of you who have trouble with desire, which includes me, okay, for girls, alright, he says, check this out, read this, um, all you have to do is realize that they're composed of parts, and everything will change, you know, so I'm like, Wow, okay, this is the emptiness of girls, you know, so I'm like, just realize that they're made up of left eye, right eye, left ear, right ear, so I'm like concentrating, left ear, right ear, you know, and nothing changed, you know, and didn't fix anything. Okay, so they're made of atoms. Okay, so they're made of parts. It didn't seem to remove my negative emotions, okay, it didn't seem to remove my negative thoughts. Doesn't seem to relate 
to emptiness, which is supposed to fix all your problems. Okay? Doesn't seem to directly relate to that. Okay? It doesn't, I can try to think of them as being, you know, Mattel parts, you know, but it doesn't really remove it, you know, my desire, my improper desire. Okay? So I, so I, I was very happy to find out when Pabokramache said, that's not the ultimate explanation. Okay? So what is? Here's number three. What's we'll a consequence group? In Sanskrit, it's called prasangika. This is the higher half of the four school, schools. Okay, this is the ultimate explanation. This is the school of Lord Buddha, uh, Nagarjuna, uh, Chandakirti, Shantideva, the Dalai Lama, the Pension Lama, Ken Rinpoche, everybody. Okay, all tantric schools except this explanation. Okay, this is the ultimate explanation of dependent origination. Okay. Uh, by the way, they're called consequence because they believe in the power of consequence, consequential logic used for someone to prove something. For example, they believe that you can prove emptiness to somebody just by showing them the consequences of their wrong ideas about emptiness. Okay? And that's a, why they're called the, that's cool. You don't have to worry about that. You don't have to know that. That's just why they have a weird name. Okay? Uh, what do they think dependent origination means? What do they think it is to be dependent origination. They think that everything is dependent because they exist on the projections that are coming from your mind to be there. And those projections are forced on you by your past karma. Okay, you've got to get all that in your answer. They believe that the very existence of everything around you comes from projections of your own mind and that those projections are forced on you by your past karma. Does it mean that they think everything is just the mind only? No. Okay? Do they accept the existence of outside objects? Yes. If you don't think so, go stand in front of a car. Okay? And report to us whether it's outside of your mind. You see what I mean? That's not the point. Okay? The point is, is, is this, okay? You can, you can apply it to, to my arm, okay? Uh, Prasangika, Majamika says, ultimately speaking, this is only a flesh-colored cylinder, okay? This is a flesh-colored cylinder. Okay, if you're going to be a real scientist, this is a flesh-colored cylinder, okay? There's something in my mind that's making me see it as a human arm, okay? There's something coming from me, from my side, that's making me see it as a human arm. There is no human armness in that cylinder. Okay? And if I happen to have different karma, lousier karma, I would be seeing that cylinder as a dog's leg. Okay? You've got to get used to that. And that's what it is to be a dog. And that's what it is to be a human. You've got to get used to that. Technically speaking, this is just a neutral cylinder. Emptiness means blank or neutral. This is just a plain old innocent neutral cylinder. Whether I see it as an arm, human arm, or whether I see it as a dog's leg depends only on my state of mind. What, what's coming out of my mind? Okay? Majimika Prasangika says, there's no armness about this cylinder. There's nothing army about it. Okay? Whatever armness it has is coming from my mind and being imputed or labeled or attached to that cylinder. Okay? And it could have just as well been a dog's leg. Okay? If I had different karma, 
I would have been... So, what is the dependent origination of this arm? This arm has originated through there being a reasonable basis, meaning a flesh-colored cylinder, and a reasonable state of mind forced on me by my past karma that turns it into an arm. And there is no arm other than that. There's no other arm that exists in the universe that exists from its own side without my mind forcing me to see it as an arm. And if I had just a little bit different karma, and it don't take much, get it, okay? Slight shift in my karma, I could see it stop. I could see this stop breathing. Very slight shift in my karma. People don't stop breathing. Their karma shifts slightly, and they see themselves stop breathing. That's called death. And it takes a tiny shift more to see it as a dog's leg. It's very easy to get reborn as a dog if what I just said is true. It takes about two minutes of mental shifts. It takes about two minutes of changes of your karma. And that's a scary thing. If what I'm saying is true, then that whole rebirth stuff is true. And, it's, and anyone in this room could be a dog five minutes from now. Okay? You have to think about it. If Madhyamika Prasangika is true, this whole stuff about rebirth is no like, there's no dog factories in Kansas turning out dog bodies and they stuff your spirit into it or something like that. If your karma shifted slightly, if your perception shifted slightly, this blank, empty, neutral cylinder, you, you would be seeing it as a dog's leg and you would be a dog because you're seeing it that way. You see what I mean? That's very frightening. It, it makes uh, everything very serious. Are we getting close to the real Buddhism? You see what I mean? Is this what dependent origination really means? Yeah, okay. That, then it becomes very important. What are the practical applications of thinking like this? You know, next time your boss comes in and yells at you, you focus on that boss. You say, is this a neutral, is this neutral uh, decibels going up and down with changes of coloration on an oval with another oval and some kind of changes of, you know, I mean, technically, is that what it is? If you're a physicist, you'd say, oh, look, here comes an oval. And there's another oval in the middle. And there's some red uh, cylinders moving like that. And there's changes in the decibels around me. You see, that's all really that's there. That's all the raw data there is. And something about you is making it sound like a boss is screaming at you. Okay? That's very important to understand. That's the emptiness of your screaming boss. Okay? How do you prove it in an easy way? Is that boss an unpleasant, screaming boss to everyone in that room? No. The guy sitting across the, the room who hates your gut, it's music to his ears. You see what I mean? Uh, he thinks this is the best thing that's happened all day. He, he truly, honestly perceives this as a pleasant experience. Okay? So that proves the emptiness of the boss. Okay? The boss is just decibels and changes in shape and color then your mind is making you see it as an unpleasant experience. Why? Because of some kind of imprints you put in your mind before. When? When you said something unkind to someone. So what's the stupidest thing you could do back to your boss? Scream back. What's the most natural thing to do back to your boss? Scream back. What's the Tibetan word for this suffering world? Korwa. Self-perpetuating stupidity. Okay? <laughs> you scream back, that's the most natural thing you can think of to do. Then you have to see him again. You have to see that decibels and colors and shapes as an ugly yelling boss again. 
the stupidest thing a Buddhist can do is to react with violence to violence. You are assuring what? That you'll have violence again. In fact, it's the only way to have violence happen to you again. You know? If you really were like uh, trying to design your future suffering carefully, that would be the ideal thing to do. You know? Like, I really would like to suffer next year. I'll scream back. You know? I want to make sure he's still around next year. Okay? By the way, I've always said that this is a method by which you can eliminate people at work that you don't like. Be kind to them. Don't respond to them with violence. When they're bad to you, when they hit this cheek, say, hey, would you like to hit this one? Okay? And then you're guaranteeing their, their elimination. They'll be transferred to Iowa. They'll get a heart attack. Uh, something will happen. They'll be out of your life in a year. I swear to God it works. I was in corporate life for 16 long years. Uh, 12 hours a day. It works. By the time I got out of there, it was like heaven. I'm not kidding. You know, I had a department of 150 people and it was like everybody wanted to go to work. You know, it was really weird. Okay. <laughs> so that's the ultimate need to depend on origination. Okay. So what's emptiness? Emptiness is very simple. It's the fact that nothing's any other way. Okay? Double negative. Nothing is not that. That's all. Nothing is not that. What? Your projections forced on you by your vast karma. Okay? Very simple. What do you mean when you say empty, emptiness? Everything is not, not dependent origination. Got it? Is that the same as dependent origination? No. It's a negative. You're stating what things are not. Okay? And there's another cool thing about this. Once you understand it intellectually, if you can learn in deep meditation to put your mind on this particular fact, that nothing is not dependent origination in the ultimate way of describing it. If you can put your mind for 20 minutes on that fact, when you come out of it, you see your future lives directly. You see your own enlightenment directly. You know how many lifetimes it's going to take and you see them directly. You know that you have just seen a Buddha directly. Okay? All this stuff happens to you if you can practice thinking like I just described. And if you meditate. It's very cool. That's the big selling point of emptiness. Okay? First of all, it helps you at work. Secondly, you can see all this stuff. You can pinpoint your own enlightenment and you can make it happen. It's very cool. Okay? But you have to understand emptiness. Okay? And that's the third of the three principal paths. Uh, you have some burning question. What is that? Say it loud. Yeah. Oh, right. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, he said basically, do you reject the sutras view? Do you throw it out? But doesn't it give a good explanation of why the, why the, why the cylinder is there in the first place? Because it comes from its own causes and conditions. That's true. You know, all the explanations of emptiness that Lord Buddha gave, those first two versions are not stupid. 
the guy who proposed them was Lord Buddha. Okay? Because he knew people could relate to that more easily. And in fact, when you study emptiness in detail, there are basically six different flavors of emptiness that Lord Buddha taught. The first five are wrong. Uh, the first five are not ultimate. But they lead you up very beautifully to number six. Yeah. So, of course, it's important to think of to think that this hand has come from its causes and conditions. But that's not ultimately what's going to liberate you. You see, you must see the highest one. You must come to see the highest one. But you work up through the lower explanations. So they're beautiful, they're exquisite, they're important. You have to know them. Uh, that's one of the Mahamudra meditations that we've been doing. People went to California. You go through the six versions of emptiness that Lord Buddha taught. The first five are not true. Uh, the last one is true. But Lord Buddha taught them because for that particular audience, on that particular night, that was the best one they could relate to. Uh, and, and that's how he did it. So yeah, that's true. The sutra's position is, is basically true. It's not the ultimate one. You see what I mean? Uh, one more question, then we've got to stop. Uh, Debbie said this, if you've gone through 70 years of practice seeing this particular cylinder as a human, how is it even possible that you can switch in a minute? You know, how could that really happen? You've built up such a habit of seeing it that way. I'm saying this, come on, everybody dies in a minute. Everybody dies in a minute. Get used to it. The shift, that radical shift in your karma and your projections and your perceptions from seeing this body as breathing to seeing this body as not breathing happens to everyone. Okay, if you don't practice Tantra, okay, it happens to everyone. You will see that. That's just an explanation. You know, people worry about getting cut on their finger. People worrying about uh, losing their job. Uh, people worry about having a fight with their wife or their husband. Get this. Your karma to own everything wears out in one minute. That's called death. You know, like you have this really crappy karma. Every year or so, it makes a very bad change in your life. Okay? That's how karma works. Every year or so, you lose something that you loved. Okay? But get this, on the last hour, it all gangs up on you. And you lose everything. All of the projections change in about a minute. Okay? One minute, you're sitting there with your nice, happy family around the bed, grasping your arms and crying. And the next minute, you are in a very weird, psychedelic, horrible experience called the bardo. Okay? And it happens to everybody. Karma is relentless. Karma is ruthless, you know. And, it, and that particular karma to be alive all wears out. All the karmas wear out. To own everything you ever owned. To look like anything you ever looked like. To have the kind of mind that you ever had. To have the name that you had. All that wears out in five minutes. And suddenly, you're this nameless person in the bardo, you know. Alone. And terrorized. Uh, People say, oh, I can't wait to die. It'll be so interesting. Forget it. You know, it's terrible. And, and yeah, that wears out in a minute. It doesn't, matter how, it doesn't matter if you had 70 years of getting used to your body and your mind. You lose them. You can't think at all like you used to think five minutes later. Because your mind is a projection. Okay? Your mind is a projection. And you'll stop projecting a reasonable, intellectual, sensitive New York mind. And you'll, you'll be a, a beast in five minutes. And, and you won't know the difference. You won't remember what you were. You know, why do you think people can't remember former lives? Buddhists aren't making it up. 
Okay, it hap- you did have formal lies. You can't remember them. Your mind is totally different now. It hap- and in that space between living and dying, you- all of those changes, all those projections of your own mind come down. The changes all come down in five minutes. And you, you couldn't recognize yourself for anything five minutes later. You have no, you can hardly remember what you were. Uh, you have a new projection of your mind. Okay? That's why death is so serious. That's why we have to learn all this stuff and get enlightened fast. Okay? All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, then we're going to make some kind of sound. And then you're going to get into, uh, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, John still is going to do it. And then that means that you're going to get into certain groups with certain uh, teachers who are going to go over the rest of the homework with you. I repeat that you cannot get into this class this Thursday if you don't have a homework in your hot little hand. Okay? That's our contract. I don't charge you any money, but you've got to have that homework, okay? Or you don't get in, all right? Uh, it has to be filled out, too. <laughs> <laughs> then at around uh, 9, 10, 9, 15, we're going to ring a bell or whatever again, and I'm going to give some closing remarks. I, in each of these review classes, I would like to go over uh, the mission statement for this for this thing that's happening here. These classes, these translations, this whole thing, what's going on here and its implications and the methods we're using to teach Buddhism. I, I want to do that in the last year that I'm here. So I, I want you to know the logic behind how we did the classes and stuff like that. Because I expect each one of you to be teaching other people. If not now, then, then shortly. So I'd like, I'd like to espouse my viewpoint on how Buddhism is is taught in the United States and what are good ways to teach it, what are effective ways to teach it. So, so we'll have a break, uh, five, ten minutes, and then when you hear John say, please get into your groups, you get into your groups, and I'll be walking around to check things out, and then uh, the leaders have to go over the homework. If somebody goes home tonight not knowing a homework question, that's your fault. Okay? Uh, and you don't have much time, so don't let those, uh, what do you call it, stubborn students uh, get you stuck on one question. Okay, you got to finish all the questions. Huh? Yeah, it's homework number two. Because theory like that, I went over number one. Except for that Ken Rinpoche Geshe Lawson Tarchin question, which you figured out by now. Okay? <laughs> all right. Okay, have a break, and then we'll start. Okay, okay we'll start. Uh, this is very brief. It's a two-minute thing, and then you can go home, okay? Uh, Seriously, every, every class during the coming year, I want to give a few comments about my approach on teaching Buddhism and, and how I think Buddhism can spread in America and how it can help people in America. And I think the first, I call it the ACI Manifesto, okay? And you'll, you'll get pieces of it every night, okay? Whenever I finish them. So, the very first part, which I'm doing from memory, okay, is the mission statement. Okay, what are, what are we trying to do? What, why, is, why should we have classes like this? Okay, what, what is the purpose of a class like this? If you're going to be a teacher uh, of Buddhism in the United States, uh, what, what are you supposed to teach? And what are you, why are you teaching? Okay? Uh, I had a Geshe Tsuga. He's a Geshe from this uh, minor college called Sergei. Uh, <laughs> that... Uh, called me from Boston. I was in Boston teaching and he, he called me and he says, I have to see you. 
you know. And I got scared. I thought he was going to get mad at me for teaching or something like that. And I don't even know him. I never met him. So uh, he's this big Geshe in Boston. So, you know, like kind of nervous, I went to his house. And uh, he was sitting on, on this throne, you know, and he said, sit down, you know. And I sat down and he says, I got to tell you something. And uh, so he says, listen, uh, Buddhism has to spread in America. There's 250, 300 million people here. They have to learn Buddhism. And you've got to stop thinking that us Tibetans are going to come over here and teach it. You have to learn. You have to spread it. Americans have to learn. Americans have to teach Americans. And that's up to you. You have to help do that. That's all. You know, and then he says, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then he, then he gives this big smile. And he says, now I'm taking you out for a Chinese lunch, you know. And, uh, but I, it made me think, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, we are like the first Tibetan Buddhists. You know, Indian gurus came to Tibet uh, for about a hundred years, you know, and, they, and I'm sure that the Tibetans thought at first that they could never be teachers. You know, they always said, they probably said, what do you think you're teaching? You know, we've got to call a real Indian guru here. You know, Tibetans don't count. Tibetans don't know Buddhism. We've got to have an Indian here. You know, we've got to get some gold and go down to Calcutta or, or West Bengal and find a, another Lord Atisha, you know. The Tibetans can't teach Buddhism, you know what I mean? And then, obviously, after a few years, they were, and now they're the best, okay? Uh, so it will naturally come to our country. Uh, the manifesto, the, the very first statement in the ACI mission statement, uh, says that the reason to teach Buddhism is nothing less than stopping the death and old age of the people whom you are teaching. Okay? It's not to make them calm. It's not to make them friendly. Uh, it's not that they learn to cope with the problems of their life better. It's not even that they become compassionate citizens of the world. Those are all covered also. But, but the goal of having these teachings is nothing less than each person here seeing emptiness directly and becoming enlightened. And that's it. You know, when you become enlightened, in this lifetime, if you practice Tantra, okay, uh, if you go on to practice Tantra, that, that you yourself don't have to die and, and that you can move out of this realm. By the way, the, way, the nature of the way you move out is that you, it's not very obvious to the people who are in. Okay? That accounts for the fact that you haven't seen thousands of Tibetan lamas disappearing from the face of the earth. Okay? There's, there's a thing about being in the desire realm that you cannot even recognize it when a person moves out of the desire realm. Uh, but they have, and thousands of people have. And, and, and the goal of this institution, the goal of these classes, is nothing less than that each person in this room is assured to reach enlightenment uh, in this lifetime if we can pull it off. And, and, and I want you to have that as the mission statement. There's no other goal here uh, than that. No lesser goal than that. And sometimes I think in a lot of Buddhist classes around the country, they don't even talk about that. That's actually when the lady said I was Walt Disney on acid, was when we started to get to this part, you know. Uh, but that's really what the Buddha said. Marikpa me, marikpa sepa, mepa ne, gashi me, gashi sepe, padu, yame do. Heart Sutra, the heart of the Heart Sutra, the middle of the Heart Sutra. You don't have to die. You don't have to get old. Just stop your ignorance. Learn how to do it. And, and that's what I want you to think. When you think of this 
a Dharma Center, if you want to call it, or institute, if you want to call it, or a group of people who are going to teach other people, that has to be your mission statement. In your own mind, uh, you're trying to get yourself and other people to see emptiness directly, to experience your own enlightenment, to know what day it's going to be, to know how many lifetimes you've got to go, to know what a Buddha looks like, to meet a Buddha directly. And all of those experiences, that's why we have this institute. So, so that's, the, that's all I have to say tonight. That'll be the first paragraph of the mission statement. If you're a teacher from ACI, uh, you've got to keep that in. That's what your goal is. Okay, by hook or crook, by sutra or tantra, uh, I'm going to get these people enlightened. You know, and, and they don't have to die. And, and we're going to do it before people get too old to do it. And that's the reason to have these classes. Okay? That's the mission statement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bill says you can't get out in the first class, you know, and, and, and start telling people, you know, I'm going to make it so you don't die. And they say, I want to die, you know. And, okay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not like that. Yeah. Yeah. Even Lord Buddha, as we studied in the last course, uh, oftentimes didn't present the ultimate goals in the beginning, knowing that it would freak out his audience. Uh, but I'm being very frank with you. These are, these are the only goals of this class, is that at least one or two people see emptiness directly and, and don't have to die, uh, and don't have to get old. And th- that is the goal of Buddhism. That's, the Buddha said it in the Heart Sutra. Okay? Uh, we'll do a prayer, and then we'll start. Okay. There's a very fine student out in uh, Santa Cruz named Brandy Davis who's having a baby as we speak. And uh, I'd like you to pray for that baby. Okay? All right. Good night. See you.